Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy Hanukkah, if you celebrated that earlier this month. Happy New Year, coming up shortly here. What a weird time, huh? I wrote about this in the newsletter this past weekend. If you're not on the newsletter list yet, go to HeathRosella.com and enter your email address. You'll get my newsletter every Sunday in your inbox. But I wrote about just how weird this holiday season was. We did a Zoom call for Christmas. Had, uh, I don't know, 15, 16 different people on it, something like that. It went about an hour. And in some ways it felt too long. And in some ways it felt like we barely scratched the surface and we should have been on it all day. My wife and I always host a big Christmas here. People come in from out of state. Some people come in from Canada. I mean, we have people from other countries coming in. But I love just having people here for, you know, two or three days and getting a lot of time to visit with them. And having an hour with a big group on Zoom felt weird. But here we are. This is 2020. I did not have a show last Thursday because of Christmas. And I was contemplating taking this week off because of New Year's and not uploading new shows. But this one today with Hal Rosenbluth, I've actually had for a couple of weeks now and really wanted to get it out there. It's a really fun conversation. Hal is the CEO of Kaufman Astoria Studios, which is a production facility in Astoria, New York. That's part of the borough of Queens. And Kaufman Astoria is actually the oldest studio in New York City. How we'll get into the whole history of what the facility used to be and how it started and all the different hands it's gone through. But what really fascinated me about this conversation, part of it was the COVID protocols and just learning about what does it take to get back on set now. And if you're the facilities people that own the building and, you know, the physical part of all of it, how do you ensure that the people that are coming in that aren't your employees usually, you know, they're going to be working for the production company or the network or whatever it is. How do you keep them safe? How do you set the rules? How do you make sure everyone's on the same page? So we talk a lot about COVID, and we talk also a lot about development. And I'm talking about building development, not story development, but actually building out buildings and renovating. And, you know, how do you manage development? How do you do it smartly? How do you go into a neighborhood and restore your little corner of it, little piece that you own, and get others around you to make changes as well? And that's what Hal and his team did with Kaufman Astoria Studios. It's actually named for George S. Kaufman, who's a real estate developer. He was the one that helped transform the studio uh, starting in, I think, the 70s or so is when they took it over and really not only renovated the physical studio space itself, but all the area around it as well. Kaufman Astoria is part of the Kaufman Arts District now in Astoria. Uh, There's the Frank Sinatra High School, which is a Arts High School, right on campus there. The Museum of Moving Image is right there as well. I remember going there in high school. We did a trip out to New York, and they had the Seinfeld set there. And I was just like in heaven. It was the coolest thing. And I know they've done Muppet exhibits and all sorts of fun stuff. So it's really about not just building one business, but about building up a whole community. And of course, in my time at This Old House and all, I am huge into conversations like that. So I love talking to Hal about how do we develop things. And then the other topic that we fell into was about tax incentives. And, you know, I never know exactly where these conversations are going to go, but I am really, really fascinated in that topic. We have huge incentives here in Massachusetts to try to get productions to come here. But New York has has tax incentives as well. Atlanta, Vancouver, Toronto, a lot of places are offering these. Some of them were kind of flash in the pan that, you know, they passed maybe, I don't know, eight or 10 years ago and then didn't get renewed and the production industry either never took off or went away. Some of these tax incentives have really allowed productions to flourish, including in New York. So Hal and I ended up talking a lot about the role that tax incentives and and tax breaks can play in not just bringing a production to town, but then what does that do to the whole economy of an area? Is it worth it? to essentially give away money with the hopes that you're going to generate other economic activity. So there's a lot to dive into here. Hal and I had a great conversation. Here it is. 
my interview with Hal Rosenbluth. I want to start by just asking you sort of the general question about how these last, you know, whatever it's been, eight or nine months have been, this this quarantine period. <laughs> well, I don't think I'm different than anybody else in terms of the stress uh, uh, that it has brought to everybody's life and the concerns I've had for friends and loved ones and especially the employees that are here. And sure. we were very blessed in being able to keep everybody on and keep them uh, uh, employed and working, working from either home or coming here every now and then make sure the facility was still in, in condition to be reopened. So yeah. having everybody on board and kept that way, I thought was the right thing to do. Uh, and we did everything we could to do it and we were able to pull it off. And I'm very proud of us for that. That's great. Now that's huge during this time. I, I wonder what, like the people that were working from home during that time, if you didn't have production shooting, what did that what what did their work look like? We were very busy. I mean, remember, Kaufman Story Studios is not just rent the stage. Yep. We are a, you know, we're a full campus. We've created the Kaufman Arts District, which goes well beyond even the borders of our original campus. We are always working on, on different aspects of development and growth and always under the positive assumption that production will come back and some idea of normalcy will uh, return to us. So it's always been that, that thought process. So we were all very busy and it's always still working as you get closer through the year, you still have the accounting to do of the company and things of that nature. So our, our folks were, were pretty busy. Folks that were dealing in the operational side, obviously they needed to be here to do that. Yep. Um, so we worked with them in, 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 in some different ways and everybody was you know working on getting set for uh, getting the right PPE, getting the place set up to reopen. We remember we opened in stage four, so it was getting all of the right security clearances. You, you don't get on the campus without getting a temperature check and a form filled out, going through the legal process for those forms, um, the software necessary to be able to track it all, uh, how are we going to get clients into the onto the premises, et cetera. So, I mean, we stayed pretty damn busy. Yeah. I mean, it's a whole different infrastructure, it sounds like. Just, you know, temperature checks and checkpoints and all that. It's not uh, it's not business as usual right now. No, it's not usual at all. It's like I said to someone recently, I am beyond thrilled, and, a, and I think it's a great statement for New York that our industry is willing to come back to New York to create the product, spend their money here in New York, and allow us to still uh, remain in business here in New York because, you know, our industry is a mobile industry. Yeah. Um, New York is a great place, has a lot to offer. It is the world's best place to shoot film or television, but they don't have to be here. Right. right? Then go then go someplace else. You're, you're watching shows on your TV screen shot in Chicago, in L.A., in Atlanta, you know, and everywhere in the world. So it doesn't have to be here. And so that good housekeeping vote of confidence uh, made me feel very, very good and very confident. But what my point is, is, is that the protocols that are in place to keep everybody safe and healthy is as stringent as you will find anywhere in our industry. Uh, my team is tested weekly. On a production company, there is uh, the, the, the base crew is tested weekly. The shooting crew is tested three to five times a week. Wow. People are zoned out and separated. So, you know, for example, we do lunchrooms, right, for, for them to be able to get something to eat. I'm at lunchrooms because you and I might be working together, and we know Joey over there. You and I will never sit down at a table with Joey. Yeah. You know, and Joey's going to sit with the people that are hitting his zone. So that it gets compartmentalized. So God forbid there was a breakout. It's containable. Yeah. And what happens is you have more than a dozen COVID officers on each of these productions. So it's like almost like an internal police force, right? right. Uh, to make sure everybody's doing the right thing and checking on people and and testing. And, you know, we have a new production rolling in. So they came walking through and normal is the line producer comes and the line producer brings the production manager. Very normal. Line producer brings their production coordinator. Very normal. Line producer brings their security COVID officer. Not so normal, right? right sure. That's like a whole new world, right? And then the uh, outside COVID consulting firm, right? To make sure that there's enough ventilation in every room and everything is done. And like, you know, we did a lot of different things here at the studio. We said, what were we doing? We changed every faucet in a public bathroom to uh, hands-free. 
Oh, wow. We added wash stations at every stage so a crew member can go over and wash their hands. So there's just a lot to be said for how this industry is, is handling the pandemic and trying to get a desired product out to the consumer. Yeah. I mean, it is funny, I think, when you see shows that are still shooting and, you know, I mean, I'm talking everything from talk shows to dramas. And obviously you see the people on screen without masks. And then, you know, you see some of these behind the scenes photos now where, you know, the crew are they're in full masks and face shields. And oh, like, sure. It's it's a whole different thing. I wonder just sort of, you know, in developing all these safety protocols like I, I don't know. I, I know for me as a consumer it's really hard to understand just who has the best information right now and how extreme is too extreme or, you know, should I be going that far? Like as you guys are trying to develop a safe plan for your campus, what, it, what does that look like? Like what are the inputs coming into that and how do you, how do you strike a balance, I guess? Well, for us, you know, for us getting on a campus, we originally worked with CDC guidelines and New York state and city guidelines yeah. uh, as, as a first step. Uh, the industry which were, you know, worked with both of those. And the unions also were, were, uh, uh, weighed in and worked with consultants. So they spent a lot of time building a protocol that they thought could do as, give as much assurance as possible keeping people safe. Yeah. And so whatever that meant, and, and it is a cost. I mean, for any company that's trying to operate right now, I mean, we have separate line item in our, uh, in our financials now that are COVID costs. Wow. You know, you say take temperature and things like that. Well, you're hiring a uh, uh, on your security services someone that's been trained to be able to do that. So that costs, you know, theoretically costs more than the typical person sure. uh, that would be there. Um, but you 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 got to have a lot of respect for the thought process that went into this on how we separate people. You know, how do we get the actor from the makeup room to the to the set since they can't put a mask on? Right. Mm, right. So, I mean, that was that hallway was cleared. I mean, if you didn't have, you know, the the red and white band on, you best not be within 100 feet of this person. Right. You know, so they were very strict in 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 how they have uh, done this. And I have great respect for how they're doing it, uh, making sure that everybody is safe. And then even for ourselves, you know, we took our our stage managers and we put them in two separate offices on the other side of the building so that God forbid somebody uh, was exposed to or got the virus. We didn't have to shut down the company. Right. And it's the same concept. We, we're doing a similar concept with the, what production's doing, except they're grouping people within departments. Right. So they can contain, you know, who the contact was with the, on the show. So if, if something happened with our stage managers, you know, we would handle the operations here in the executive office. If the executive office, uh, someone got sick, the operations could still take place with the stage managers handling it. Same thing in our lighting company. We are paying people five days a week, but they're on team A and team B. So this week you're working three days. Next week you're working two. But team A is not going to be in the building at the same time as team B. Gotcha. So, uh, this way, the company still operates if somebody were to contract the virus. And that's how you have to do it. I mean, that's just across the board. You know, so, you know, on the executive level, it's a little bit different in that we thought about doing that same split up within the office. And I said, no, I said, we are more in the executive office, we'll call it more productive together here than remotely. Doesn't mean we can't get stuff done. So I think we're, we're seeing a world in which we understand that you can work remotely, but running a business of any kind is a collaborative effort. And that collaborative effort comes because one of the people here can walk in my office and say, hey, Hal, hey, you, you know, do you remember that guy? Well, he's back, and what do you think we do this with, with, with them? Or what do you think of buying this piece of equipment? That's not a Zoom call. That's like, you know, it's a spur of the moment. That's the collaborative effort. Sitting in a, a, around just having a conversation about the weekend has, through the years for me, has triggered some idea. Sure. And, and that, that's, to me, what is needed. So when we talk about working remotely, I think people are starting to remember that there's a reason I hired Heath 
and Heath is in the office next door so that Heath can get up and walk into my office and say something or vice versa. And I think we're going to have see more of a need of that to happen. Yes, we found there's certain categories that can work very efficiently remotely. But again, it's just there's something about being down the hall from the person you're, uh, you need to communicate with all the time that there is both comforting and uh, I think makes the process go a lot more efficient and better. Yeah. And you found that, that that has returned being back in person. Like that that piece was missing when everybody was remote over the summer. Oh, it was. Everyone kind of felt, everyone was a little nervous, you know, the first day you come back. Right. But it was like, oh my God, this is great. I'll never forget sitting in my CFO's office and she's saying something. And whatever she said triggered something I had completely forgot about. And I jumped out of the chair and I said, where are you going? I said, you just reminded me of something. And I ran back to my office to take care of it. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the pieces that, that work to be today. We were separated, you know, we're nearing end of year. She wanted to go over stuff with me and sitting in the room with it up on a big screen, you know, we were able to really chat. Yeah. And um, just it, 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 not that you can't do that remotely. It's just different. That's yeah. all. We're having that conversation. And all of a sudden I hear my, our operations head in the hallway. And so I yell out his name to come in because some of the stuff we were talking about on the, on the, on the year end stuff, we said, well, here's Pete. Now let's ask him the question. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's what I mean by uh, being able to be together. That that's really important. And, sure. and certainly a creative process like, production, you, you certainly, you're not, you can't do that remotely. There, yeah. There's a for sure that is not happening remotely. Right, right. Um, well, I want to kind of get off the COVID stuff for a minute too, and just sort of talk bigger picture and sort of understand, I guess, Kaufman Astoria's role in, you know, the bigger production scene right now. There's just this article in the New York Times about uh, production booming across New York City and kind of all the yep. studios expanding their space. You guys were interviewed for it, as were many of the other places in town. And, you know, I, mm -hmm. I guess I just wonder, like, what is it that you think is driving so much more production, you know, in these last couple of years? Obviously, there's more <laughs> there's more platforms than ever before, but there is a lot of production happening all across the country right now. Um, you're driving it. Your friend is driving it. Your brother is driving it. Yeah. Your your girlfriend, your wife, your mother. We have even prior to COVID, what we have seen is and and maybe the streaming services and the HBOs of the world really triggered that. You know, you're expecting a high level of production quality on your television set right now at home. On top of that, you not you're not looking to see a, a repeat of you know some old show. You want new content, and that's driving the bus. And and so that's a lot, that's made success out of streaming services. Listen, it goes back several years. You know, HBO doing The Sopranos, right? Sure. You know, we we were involved in uh, doing one of the first shows for. Amazon, Alpha House. We were involved in doing Orange the New Black, one of the first big hits for Netflix. And and the the realization is that triggered every other cable station creating original programming. So go down the line at what you define as a cable network and note all of the original programming now being offered to you. Right. So that content all has to be made. And so and New York has always been the second biggest production center in North America. Um, so we were always going to get our fair share of it. We've learned how to grow a, a great base of talent and that not only acting talent, but crews, you know, we're, you know, if you have a football team in an area, you need, you need a good first team, right? You need a bunch of starters. Sure. Um, the question is how many teams can you put together? Um, uh, we can go to other areas of the country. But it is unlikely without flying them all in that you're going to be able to put multiple first stringers together to, to create that team for production. New York has that capability. We can crew up dozens of productions in this town, all first team caliber players. And you're talking across the board here. This is this is DPs and gaffers and audio. I'm talking and, about yeah. construction coordinators and grips and gaffers and 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 camera people and you know the, on the acting side, where else are you going to get a better pool 
of actors to be able to call upon. Yeah, you've got you've got Broadway and sure, of course. Right, you got you know Broadway and everybody comes to New York to come and make it, but it's that other piece as well. You know, this is a a narrow skill set on how do you build that set? Art directors uh, for this industry, wardrobe people for this industry. You know, you can put real first teams together and lots of them. And yeah. that's a huge advantage for New York has to offer. Plus, when you come to New York pre-COVID now, you're here to shoot New York. Right. There's something about shooting New York as a backdrop for your project that stands out and differs from every other place you're going to shoot. And how does that balance out? Like if people are there for the backdrop, if they're there for the location shots, how how are productions balancing the need for what you're offering, you know, uh, sound stages? Well, I think they, they, they'll do uh, – we're, we're starting to see is you'll see a bit more done on the stage and uh, a set that might have been inside an apartment building in, in town yeah. is now built. Yep. is now built and what you'll get is just a shot of them uh you know a shot of them on the court steps before they get into the courthouse you know gotcha. that kind of thing so that you know they'll figure it out they're very creative very talented people that i have great respect for and and they understand what's uh, what's at stake and trying to get these products done and trying to stay within some economic reason and i think what people have to understand too you know new york state for example has a Film tax credit, as, as exists in most of the country. Yeah. That plays a huge role in getting uh, all of these companies that don't have to be here to spend their money here yeah. and get the 100,000-plus people that this industry employs employed, uh, an industry that is uh, all good-paying jobs. You, know, you, you work in this industry, you, you're likely that you're, you're making a livelihood. Right. And, and you're able to cycle that money back into the economy. You know, you're, you're you know, and, and again, I'm not just talking about COVID times, but you're earning a living. So you're, right. you're able to buy your house, buy a car, you know, uh, yeah. buy the refrigerator, go eat, whatever. It's, yeah. Go out to eat, et cetera, because you're earning a living. Uh, you're in an industry that actually pays people uh, fairly well. And it, and I'm not talking about the high end actors that you read about in page six, sure, right? Because yeah. uh, they're going to get they're going to get make that money whether it's shot in New York or Georgia or California or London, right? You're going to pay that per you know that actor that money. I'm talking about that grip and that gaffer here, the person that's working in the wardrobe department, you know, et cetera. They are they're in a nice living in a, in, a, in a great industry. And it's all organized labor. Right. Well, and I think that's something that people don't understand that haven't been on film sets or TV sets, that, as you say, people think it's, you know, the glamour and glitz of Hollywood or whatever, but that's a very small percentage of, you know, the art department and, you know, the, the construction crew that are building these sets and, you know, wardrobe, makeup. There's just, there's so many kind of blue-collar jobs uh, in this industry that, as you say, it, it helps the whole economy. Oh, yeah. I I asked, and, and this included some extras at the time, but I asked the producer on one show that was here. I said, on average, how many paychecks do you write in a week? He said over 400. Wow. One of the best photographs that we use to explain to people what's involved in this industry is, I don't know if you've ever seen it, Heath, it is, it is where the cameraman goes up in the grid, you know, the high part of the stage, yep. and they assemble all of the cast and crew on the stage and they take this huge cast and crew photo sure. and you see hundreds of people. Yeah. I have walked through politicians in the, these facilities who are uh, at the highest level who walk around stunned, amazed because their vision of making a movie is a star in 10 or 20 people. Yeah. That's okay. what they show in the movies, but you don't you don't right? realize all these other people there. And all of these departments and then the catering services that come and sure. every one of these productions is sort of a, a mobile factory. Yeah. You know? And they're employ you know, they employ a tremendous amount of people and they pay them all good wages. And like I said, they're all union uh folks that are in this industry. And they create magic. Yeah. You know, that's the other part of it. You know, I mean I I'm you know, you get a little jaded because I'm sitting here every day. But you see someone from the outside come in and you realize, you know, they're really creating magic. And then you watch what, then you actually watch one of the shows on the TV screen and you go, damn, that, they did really well, you know? And then, you, and then someone says, but you did that show. I said, yeah, but they were such a pain in the ass, you know? <laughs> right? but the product's but, good. I like watching it. <laughs> but the product's great, you know? Uh, 
and and but we deal with that all the time sure. you know and uh, it's it's a nice feeling to be part of. like we do we're we do sesame street here at Kaufman Astoria yeah we have uh, just begun shooting season 52 let me repeat that season 52 wow pretty amazing right that's wild and and when you talk to them it, you you want to get be proud of having even a tangential participation with them right they're in 140 countries you know uh, with with uh, uh, Muppeteers reaching out to uh, young children and and helping them understand and learn the fundamentals that help them in school. Yeah, it, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, uh, they, they told me once there was a study that kids who watch uh, Sesame Street do better in school than children that do not watch Sesame. Yeah, I've heard about that. Hello, it's crazy. <laughs> so you realize what they're doing. So there there are things that make you feel good. And some of the stuff that's accomplished here is, uh, as well. And, and uh, watching what they're doing, and they are creating a product, there's no question, but that product has a different impact than Orange is the New Black. Yeah, but, but they're all important. I mean, that's, you know, they're whether it's important. entertainment, exactly. whether it's education, you know, the, kind of all the arts, are, they all matter. I, I do want to ask you, though, you, you talked about sort of these tax incentives uh, through the state of New York, and this has been mm-hmm. sort of an industry trend for a long time of, you know, different states kind of undercutting each other, or different markets. And, you know, we've seen Atlanta spring up as a big production hub, Toronto, Vancouver, right. uh, here in Boston, we have big tax incentives and have had a lot of film work come through because of that. Like, I wonder how you guys help juggle that, I guess, of just, you know, producers that are trying to chase the the biggest incentive and move a crew wherever it makes the most financial sense. Like, how do you, how, how do you work with those tides, I guess. No, I, I will tell you because I think a little bit of uh, history is important. One, after um, 9-11, we helped uh, Mike Nichols, uh, and I say we, we being the industry in New York, we said don't make, you know, don't let them bring angels in America outside of New York. It belongs in New York. Everybody help. And we all help from a financial point of view to make that happen. And that was the first new production after 9-11 was Angels in America. Productions that were here went back to work, but new productions say were back open for business. That's one. By '04, we were empty, and we. I had talked to friends that were production heads in California who said we have stopped budgeting for New York. Wow! And when you hear that, you, and and that's just because the cost of New York is just more than every place else. That's a cost of living question, yep. right? We've always known that it costs more to live in New York than it does in Toronto. We knew, always knew that it costs more to live in New York than North Carolina. It's just a fact of life. And then we had, you know, a movie about Giuliani done, uh, and it was shot in Canada. And you said, what? <laughs> okay. And it, Giuliani had nothing to do with it. So don't, I'm not making anything about, right, about yeah, yeah. The, the former mayor. I mean, there's the production company. And then there was something on the Yankees that shot it in Connecticut and Massachusetts. Yep. And he said, what? <laughs> so we finally were able to have a conversation with Governor Pataki. And Governor Pataki saw the light that you had. And this is where I think tax incentives make sense. And, and this is where I think they only make sense and depends on the industry. If you have a, an industry uh, where you have an infrastructure, you have skilled labor that is losing the work for reasons beyond their control, is when you step in to do stuff. So here we are. We had basically a fairly decent industry. You know, 9-11 came, which was a horror show. We still had production after that. And then it's disappearing because the costs are so much higher. These weren't the costs that the infrastructure or the skilled labor created. These were just comparisons because other parts of the country it was less costly or other parts of the world it was less costly so to me tax incentives need to be put in place to save an industry you need to save that skilled labor if you don't save the skilled labor then the next generation isn't going to learn anything you're not you're going to lose the skill right so i don't you know pick your industry it's the same same thing in certain manufacturing areas as well so we were able to convince Governor Pataki that he needed to put some help in, and he put in a, a tax incentive. And I remember having the conversations we had with, with all the people in the legislature. We had no idea how much money they really put into this thing. And it was so successful. Directors came out of the woodwork to come back to New York. 
And what we realized was a couple of things. So if you spread your arms apart and realize that the cost of New York is up here, right? And you go, wow, it's so expensive. So what was happening, the way I like to explain to people, you're, you're the boss, okay? I come in, I'm the creative producer, and in comes your friend Joe, he's the accountant. The creative producer says, this needs to be in New York. It's better for the show. We're just gonna, we can get all these shots we need, yeah. et, et cetera, et cetera. And the accountant says, that's going to cost 40% more. What do you say as the boss? You say, sorry, you're, we're not going to New York. Right. And that's when they stopped budgeting New York. So what the tax incentive did was it didn't make us the cheapest place. It brought the numbers down. So what we learned was that producers were prepared to pay a premium to be in New York. The question is, where was that sweet spot that would allow them to keep coming uh, to do it? So pick a, do it in another way. You want to buy a suit. You can buy a suit at store A and you buy a suit at store B. Store B is going to give you a whole lot of better service, going to cost you a little bit more than store A. But if store B costs you twice as much as store A, you ain't going. Right. And so what we've done here is on a, on a percentage basis to a production company, we give the least amount of money in tax credits in the country. So let me repeat that. On, on a percentage basis to each production company, we give the smallest amount. Massachusetts, we are, gives more to that production company than we do. Uh -huh. Okay, so we're not making us the cheapest place, but we're creating the sweet spot for it still to be a premium in which the creative producer wins the argument against the accountant to the boss to say this is better for the production. Yeah. And that's how you basically save an industry and you give it the, the foundation in which it can grow. And in return, we have data since 2004 that shows a positive return to both the state and the city on these tax credits. So when I hear people talk about things like corporate welfare, I go, wow, they have no idea what they're talking about, but it, it's one of the greatest political terms ever written. You know, corporate welfare, it sounds yeah. terrible, right? But, you know, in our particular case, and when it's well thought out and you're impacting an industry as a whole, that does not have to be here. That's the other part of this, right? This industry doesn't have to be here. It can go to Chicago. Right. Go to L.A., San Francisco, Georgia. You just named some of them, right? Go to Boston. Doesn't need to be here. So how do I save that, that jobs? And so now we have an industry that depends on your study is a nine to twelve billion dollar industry in the state of New York. Employs direct and indirect over a hundred thousand people, and uh, has been a, an ability to diversify the economy in New York, and as such has become one of the pillars of the economy in New York. That's how you need to view this. It's not the political wish list that says, oh, I would take it away right away and give you some political mumbo jumbo as a, without looking at the facts. Yeah. So what I've just told you is the facts. So you get a win-win-win. So what happens? The incentive convinces Netflix, Lionsgate, Warner Brothers, Sony, uh, Amazon, et cetera, to come and spend their money in New York, right? And they're the guys getting the tax credit. And it incentivizes because businesses want to build and develop to be able to respond to the marketplace, gets folks like Kaufman and my competitors to invest private capital to grow the infrastructure. Mm. So we've every one of my competitors has grown their capacity in the lighting grip departments. Yep. Every one of my competitors have built additional stages. We just opened a new 150,000 foot building. You saw it on the, in the Times article. Yeah, no, it's it, it's a huge building. But I, I guess what what I want to ask though is, you're talking about sort of saving an industry or helping you know prop up an industry and, and be competitive. But I feel like in other parts of the country, it's trying to create an industry that doesn't already exist. They're incentivizing exactly. productions to move there, and I, I you know that to me, I guess, is the that's where the rub comes. Is trying to figure out you know yeah how do you how do you build something in Atlanta, for example. Heath, I'm in agreement with you, and, and we have, you have a, as a government, you have a choice. If you have an industry like we had here in New York, you are uh, saving an industry and giving it the foundation that they can grow from, yeah. okay? And that's what happened here. Uh, and then you can say, I really need to create an industry in my state, and I'm going to expend the money to do so. Yeah. 
in my humble opinion, that tends to fail. It doesn't happen very often that that's successful. See, Atlanta was, was, was buoyed a lot by the fact that Tyler Perry had created a huge uh, infrastructure there. Yep. So, and there were some others like him. And so they had this base foundation of, of there when skilled labor had moved in. But you take a place going back a few years, state of Michigan put in a huge incentive, giving 40% back of all the money spent. Wow. All of a sudden production was flocking there, right? And they realized, well, wait a minute, this doesn't work. We can't afford it. If you're going to create, try and create an industry, rather than using Michigan as an example, maybe it's better to say to you, if you're going to create an industry, you best be understanding that when you go in and say, it's doable, but this is going to cost us a lot of money and it's going to take time. And at the end of the day, hopefully we have a thriving industry here that can sustain itself. And there's nothing wrong with that. that, that but the, from a government point of view, there you're expanding, you're, you you're making the investment uh, unlikely to get a return for a long time in order to create an industry. Yeah. Well, the difference, I guess, is the infrastructure, right? That you you guys not only have the studio space and the skill labor. Have, yeah, the labor. That's a huge part of it. it, that, it yeah, if you're, yeah. If you're trying to build it, all it's that the skill scratch, labor. Yeah. yeah. Listen, when New York was hurting, okay, because they did this fairly successfully for a long time in in Louisiana. So when when New York was hurting for a, a long time, we knew guys that were department heads here said, you know, I'm going to move to New Orleans. The reason I'm going to move to New Orleans is because anyone that's going to come there, I'm going to be the first call. Yeah. Right, because I'm the experienced grip, gaffer, uh, wardrobe head. N name your name your position. So I'm going to get the call first, and they were right, and that and that helped uh, with the industry there. I mean, uh, Katrina did a number on that, but you, you get the idea. Right, right. Um, I want to ask you too, just sort of on this whole investment piece. I feel like one of the things that you guys have done so well is not just invest sort of within your four walls. But you you touched on it briefly, but this this Kaufman Arts District that it's not just mm -hmm. the studio itself, but it's it's the area around it. I want can you talk to me about that a little bit and just sort of how you view your role in the larger neighborhood there in Astoria? Well, sure. Let me let me uh, again uh, a little bit of history back, um, and, and I think it's I think it's rather interesting anyway. But I'm prejudiced. <laughs> um, Kaufman Astoria Studios opened in 1920 as famous players Lasky. This is actually our 100-year anniversary. Oh, wow. COVID stopped a lot of uh, all of our celebrations of our 100th year that we had planned. Yeah. But famous players Lasky was Jesse Lasky and Adolf Zucker. And we've seen stories that they interview interviews of them where they did this to be able to capture the best acting talent. Best acting talent was Broadway and vaudeville. Yep. So they built this facility, which we've since certainly expanded on uh, and renovated. And it was the home to folks like Gloria Swanson and Claudia Colbert and Rudolph Valentino. And when talkies started in the late 20s, they convinced folks like the Marx Brothers, who were Broadway stars, a lot of folks don't understand that, hmm. to come over during the day and shoot one, one year they shot animal crackers, another year they did coconuts, with the promise that they would get them back to theater in time for curtain call. Uh -huh. uh, and they did the same thing with W.C. Fields and, 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 and many, many others like that. As the 30s came in, Lasky decides to run Paramount from the West Coast. Uh -huh. When he moved out to the West Coast, a lot of those folks followed him because they found fame and fortune was easier on film than it was on eight curtain calls a week. Yep. So... A lot of them left. And then by 1942, this officially became the Army Pictorial Center. Every moving image that the armed services saw from 1942 to 1970 was either done here or controlled out of here. Wow. It's pretty neat. There are some really neat stories about it. The guys that were stationed here were called the subway commandos because they had very little uh, uh, space to uh, house the guys. So you were treated like a medical resident where you came in your civvies, changed in your uniform, worked for three, four days on, and then got back in your civvies, got in the subway, went home, and someone swapped with you. Yeah. But in 1970, the Army decides that they're going to operate differently. And they go to the city of New York, and they go, we're leaving. We're going to give you a use agreement on the, on the premises. But 1970... Mayor Abe Beam in the city of New York was on the verge of bankruptcy. Yeah. So they had no idea what to do with this. So they tried to seal the property up 
using plywood and some concrete block, but basically failed miserably at it. And the building basically was left vacant. And so in, now going forward, as we come in here, uh, we've talked to uh, uh, folks that have told us that their parents wouldn't let them walk south of Broadway. Why? Because to a parent, nothing good happens in an abandoned building. Right. To a kid, nothing but fun happens in an abandoned building. <laughs> so the, all the buildings around here at one time were thriving with the army. An analogy I give is think of a small town anywhere that is dependent upon uh, a local manufacturer for the majority of the jobs and the economic activity that's going on. Yep. But what happens to that small town when that manufacturer goes out of business? Well, that's what happened to this pocket of Astoria. You know, in this pocket of Astoria, the army was here employing thousands of people, spending their money in all the local stores. Uh, and then all of a sudden, one day they're gone. And so you ended up not only with uh, vandalism in the buildings, but you ended up with a disconnect to the community because parents were so unhappy. So when we came in here, uh, we like to tell a story because it's true. We were pulling mattresses out of the building that's now the Museum of the Moving Image. And if sanitation didn't come in time, they were back in the building the next morning. <laughs> wow. So we knew that what was necessary, and this is really George Kaufman's uh, vision, and I give him the credit. He said, we create the best production center we can and use it as an anchor to rejuvenate the neighborhood. Hmm. And that's what we did. And we got control of some of the other buildings around here. Uh, and through the years, we were able to bring in a movie theater, which had not a multiplex movie theater, which had not been here because George used to sit in the conference room and say, how do we get tumult here? You know what tumult is? You know, that, that activity, that chaos. Oh, sure, yeah. How do I get that active? So, we, you know, the Jewish term you call tumult. Right. And the answer kept coming back a movie theater. And it took a while to be able to accomplish that, to have a national chain. And we got a national chain to move in. And that allowed us to get franchises like Pizzeria Uno. Uh, and you go, oh, Pizzeria Uno. But you forget that there, that time, the only franchises that were in this neighborhood were McDonald's, Burger King, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Wow. So to get a, a larger scale franchise restaurant was huge. So you start to transform the the neighborhood. Uh, the Museum of the Moving Image also got built up and expanded, and we helped do that. Uh, and then we got a call one day from Tony Bennett, who said, I got an idea. And, yeah, what's the idea? I want to create an art school. I want it in a story, and it belongs at the studio. So George and I looked at each other. George said to me, He's right. Let's do it. Yeah. Not how much can we get for the property. And the reason was it fit the jigsaw puzzle pieces, right? Have a public high school audition only for the arts would bring the best talent the city had to offer. And so we built the Frank Sinatra School of the Arts here on the campus. All that led to us getting Starbucks on the campus because it was like the movies. Producers would walk in here and go, where's the nearest Starbucks, you know? Um, <laughs> right. And I got really tired of the, of the question. So we were able to get Starbucks here. And the publisher of the local paper, the Queens Gazette, sees me and he says, you know how? You've now brought credibility to 35th Avenue. I said, really? Not the movie theater? Not the museum? Not the studio? <laughs> not the school? And he was right. The 1,200 feet we built out for Starbucks. Yeah brought credibility to the neighborhood. But these are the way we did it is thoughtful development in which you, you know, today the political winds say no development is good. But in that case, we would have still been here in Astoria in our neck of the woods with the, the broken glass still on the, on the sidewalk and, right. and uh, not so nice people in the buildings and et cetera. So, and instead you now have a, an economically sustainable thriving area that has all these amazing things in it. And, and it allowed during the years for people to do other things. You know, somebody opened a beer garden and they talked to us about it. They wanted to call it studio square. We said, go ahead. That's awesome. Cause it all ties together. And then on top of that, we got the arts district uh, named as the arts district, the only arts district in, in the borough of Queens. And we're working really hard to build that image and make it accessible to other artists to want to be here and other businesses that are in 
any of the arts to want to be here. Um, and so we work real hard on making that occur as well. So I think it's important, and I think we have a big responsibility as owners of a facility like this to understand its impact in the neighborhood. And one of the things that separates, I think, Kaufman Astoria Studios from some of our competitors is we are in a residential neighborhood, yeah. and we respect that tremendously, and we understand that. And we want our clients to also respect that and utilize it because – our neighbors have already built the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. That's right. already here. I didn't have to reinvent that. You look at some of our competitors who these types of facilities tend to be in more isolated areas, right? And in commercial industrial areas that are a bit more isolated. Sure. And so they don't have as much of that impact. But a lot of my competitors have done a nice job doing some similar things in their neighborhoods now and have, have done well. I mean, we built a residential building, George used to say, but it's small. And I'd say, you see anybody building anything bigger? Because we're building what they're allowing us to build. But it was the reasoning wasn't just to build a residential building. It was to spur residential, new residential activity in the neighborhood. Mm. And indeed, our neighbor who had land uh, has now opened up a really nice rental building. We were a <laughs> condo, they're a rental. And that's what you want. That's called growth. It's organic growth that helps neighborhoods be sustainable long-term. What we're hearing on the political winds, which is so upsetting, is that no development is any good. I don't know what's happening in Boston. I think it is a lot of people being fed a bunch of bad information um, because thoughtful development is what has always created New York, uh, helped create Boston, yeah. because if you don't grow, you will wither on the vine and die at some point. And what you want is you want that investment in the communities because that creates local jobs, local activity, local economic activity that allows for the businesses that have been hurting to get the opportunity to get some uh, uh, new blood. Yeah. Well, it's it's economic impact. It's uh, There's a keeping up with the Joneses aspect to it, which I love that just, you know, you invest in your building and then the neighbor looks at their place and says, you know what, I got to I got to clean up my act. And it, also what you touched on there is a creative uh, kind of cycle there too, that, you know, creative impact that you, you bring enough smart people together and, you know, all in one spot, they end up informing each other too. And it makes everybody smarter for it. So I, I think it's awesome. What you guys well, the neighborhood becomes a better place. Yeah, absolutely. But, and, you know, we did a program with, as part of the arts district, we did a program with the Frank Sinatra school because they have fine arts as well as performing arts. And lady uh, pink had gotten a grant to work with the kids and we worked it out. We gave them uh, a 200-foot wall. We call it an alley that's between the Museum of the Moving Image and, and our stage K. And we gave them the wall, and she taught them how to scale their art oh, cool. so that they could do wall art, you know, on a mural basis. And we have this fabulous, you know, 200 feet of artwork um, <laughs> done by these high school kids. Yeah. And I think that's just terrific, you know, and we open it up to the public or, you know, certain times and, you know, and, and I think that's the kind of thing that we want to do it again and, and grow it and, 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 and make it a thing, you know, because I saw these, I watched these kids climbing on scaffold and learning how to, you know, scale and paint and that kind of stuff. And it was just fabulous. That's what you want. That's the impact you want to have that gives a smile. That's the impact that makes you proud of living in the neighborhood like this. And it, it's not all political. And it's, you know, it's about doing the right thing. You know, when we brought the, you know, I like to remind people, when we brought that movie theater here into the neighborhood and we were at the community board, people stood up and said, if you allow that movie theater to be here, it'll get the gangs to hang out on the corner. Hmm. And the traffic backed out to the East River. And I understand that because change is so difficult to grasp or understand in your neighborhood, right? right? And, it, you know, again, I'm pre-COVID now. If I was ever stood out there and said, I'm going to take the theater away, they would throw me off the roof right. because it became the community's theater. You know, that, that was the place, right? You went to the movies, you got something to eat, you could walk there, you could take the subway there, you could park your car there. And that's, you know, it, that's change done on a, on, on a correct, thoughtful way. Yeah. Uh, and that's how we have always looked at it. And, and, and I think that's what's helped make us successful. We're not developers that look at it as, you know, win and move on. 
Right. You know, and that does happen in a lot of communities. I get it. Uh, but for out here and what we're doing is thoughtful because we know we're here. We're, you know, we didn't do this just to build a stage and rent it out. Yeah, totally. We did this to create something really special. This is George Kaufman's legacy. Yeah. Uh, I think something he was incredibly proud of that he was able to develop this because when he came out here, everyone, including his dad at the time, told him, no one will make a movie in Queens. What are you doing? Are you crazy? Yeah. It, we always had the psychological impediment of the bridge, the 59th Street Bridge, right? Sure. You know, and, and, and the comparison is, at least here, you know, is a, you say to your wife, go on a Secaucus. And you go, what? I ain't going to the Secaucus. And then you say, we're going to the outlet mall. Oh, okay, let's go. <laughs> it, it changes the mindset. Right. So they weren't coming to Astoria or to Queens. They're coming to shoot at Kaufman. And that told uh, told me that the branding had happened and we had overcome the psychological uh, battles of the of the bridges uh, or the tunnels. And since then, the residential development uh, that has taken place in the Long Island City waterfront and, and in Queens Plaza here in New York um, completely dissolved it because now we've got a generation that wants to walk to work and, and ride a bike to work. Uh, wants one train stop to work, yeah. uh, doesn't want to move to the suburbs and commute for an hour. Right. Uh, and it's, so it is, it has completely changed. Queens is back. The story is hip now. We are, we're sexy, baby. We are sexy. <laughs> All right, there we go. Hal Rosenbluth. What an interesting guy. What I love about this show is that I never know exactly where an interview is going to go. It's, all about the guest and where they end up taking the topic and what we end up discussing. And it can go in any number of directions each show. I didn't think we'd talk so much about taxes, but we did. And it was fascinating to me. And the development piece too. Like I love just thinking about how do we develop smarter? How do we make sure that every little piece of it is fitting together? And that usually is a lot of different private businesses some public entities all working together to figure that out. Because if we all just work in a vacuum and come in and say, oh, this is going to be my thing, and what's your thing going to be? Ah, cool. It's not as good. If you can make a coherent neighborhood, a coherent space, a coherent experience, all the better. So bravo to Hal and the team over at Kaufman Astoria for doing just that. All right, the plan is to be back with a new show on Thursday if you're a subscriber to my newsletter, I mention who the guest is going to be in there. That is not confirmed yet. That interview is supposed to take place tomorrow on Tuesday. So we will see if that ends up happening or, you know, what happens there. My hope is to have a new show on Thursday, but I may end up just taking the day off because of New Year's. And we'll talk to you next week. Either way, you know, during the normal times, I have new shows every Monday and Thursday. So if you hit subscribe, you will be one of the first to hear about them and to see them in your feed. And my newsletter comes out every Sunday. Go to heathrasella.com and your email address there to get that in your inbox. I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. I will talk to you guys very soon. Stay safe. <laughs>